T-minus 10, 9, 8, 7. And we have main engine start. 5, 4, 3, 2, 1, and liftoff. DGB nominal, where the universe is a figment of its own imagination. All systems remain nominal. 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 Hello everybody and welcome to TGP Nominal, your monthly look at all things science fact and science fiction. Joining me on the show tonight is self-proclaimed crazy Yankee and Roundtree's <laughs> fruit gums addict, John Berger. Yeah, that's true. I am a Roundtree fruit gums addict. <laughs> <laughs> These things happen. I just want to get, oh, what are those, um, what do you call them, black currants? Um, oh man, I wish we could get those over here. Just the berries, you can't get the berries over here. Oh really? From what I understand... Back in the very early part of the 20th century, I think I think they found out that black currants are actually responsible for the transmission of Dutch elm disease. That would probably explain why we had a massive case of that in the late 60s, early 70s, and they had to kill off a load well, of trees. Yeah, well, I mean, this was like way before then, but it turned out that, I think it was Dutch elm disease, but basically it ended up just destroying a bunch of trees over in Europe and so forth. So they, that's, that's it. We're getting rid of all of them. They were made basically illegal here in the States to have black currant plants. Well, and they've only recently uh, reneged on that. We have a, um, a cordial kind of drink here called Ribena, which is a black currant um, drink. And uh, they had this thing on the bottle where uh, if you you know take the label off and you go to the website and you can see if you've won a prize and it said you've won a ribena bush so i thought okay yeah a black currant bush that'd be good in the garden you know so i sent off for it and this jiffy bag arrived with a stick in it and it didn't grow to anything it was it was in the ground for 18 months and it was just a stick (laughs) well Okay, I'm sure. Yeah, I'm sure that it should have had to have some kind of root structure to work, but <laughs> um, and it even it said a little um, note that was in the bag that said, "Hi, my name's Ben. I'm your <laughs> Bribina Bush." <laughs> uh, not this time. <laughs> Not only is John joining us on the show tonight, but we have a special guest joining us later in the show. Stay tuned to find out who it is. Since the last show, we've decided to roll out with the bi-monthly or semi-monthly episodes, depending on what side of the pond you are. Wait, those are different terms on on either side, really? Yeah, um, we don't actually use the term um, semi-monthly. We use the term bi-monthly, but in America, it seems to be bi-monthly means once every two months. I was unaware of that. So was I until I looked it up because I was a bit confused. I thought, well, what do I use? Do I use bi-monthly or semi-monthly? And it turns out we don't actually use that, but we use bi-monthly to mean twice a month. Well, did I semi-monthly last time and I confused the bejesus out of you? Yeah. (laughs) Okay, fair enough. (laughs) I did not know that. Two countries separated by a common language. (laughs) Now, uh, how this will work is that if you prefer spacey stuff, a space-related show will be available to download within the first week of the month. But if you prefer our Geek Fest kind of shows, well, that episode will be launching into the podosphere within the third week of the month. So if you're a subscriber, hopefully this will give you enough time to digest both shows. And if you're not, well, why not? Check out the info at the end of the show and you'll find out where you can subscribe to us. 
The only exception to that format of the show would be, for example, if we were podcasting live from a special event and then we would launch a one-off Uber feature-length episode. In fact, we have a special event coming up very soon as we are proud to announce that we will be officially covering the Field of Force Day 3 on October the 10th. Adri Bullhawk Mallows from our sibling podcast, The Garbage Pod, will be tagging along for the event and hopefully Alan Taylor Shearer from 1800 Online Network will be joining us to film the proceedings. The Field of Force Day is the world's first accessible film and TV convention designed for visually impaired and disabled people. Field of Force Days include tactile costumes, props, vehicles, TV and film related smell jars, plus a few new and original ideas at each event. Smell jars? Um, From what I've seen on different videos uh, from previous events, they have different jars that smell like different things. For example, uh, in the video, I saw one for Princess Fiona from Shrek, Jabba's Palace. Oh, dear God. Who would want to smell that? And a (laughs) Wookiee. Same thing applies. Um, Believe me, I know what a Wookiee smells like. Uh, I was at an event where I had a photo opportunity with a Wookiee, and it was rather warm. And this Wookiee had his arm around me, and believe me, they don't smell good. (laughs) (laughs) I'll um, put links to the Field of Force Day in the show notes, as well as a promo video from last year's event. Right, shall we get on with some space news? Oh my god, yes, anything to get my mind off of smell jars. (laughs) Oh. This is the BBC Home Service. Here is the news. Let's kick things off with a quick rundown of all the launches that blasted off during August. The Progress M26M cargo resupply spacecraft departed the International Space Station on the 14th of August after a stay of six months to make room for a busy period of spacecraft traffic coming to and from the orbiting outpost. There is a lot going on in September, actually, so they do need to make room. After a stand-down of nearly two years, a Japanese H-2B rocket sailed into orbit on the 17th of August carrying the cargo for the critical HTV-5 ISS resupply mission. The inbound H-2B transfer vehicle arrived on August 26th, delivering a variety of much-needed supplies to the ISS before the crew gears up for a direct handover later this month that will briefly increase the size on board the ISS to nine crew members so yeah they really do need the supplies if they're gonna have yes. that many people on board they can get by supplies after what four failures to resupply yeah they've been quite lucky recently so um touching the noggin there um yeah, touch really. wood <laughs> it's gonna be okay from now on <laughs> An Ariane 5 rocket launched from French Guiana on August 20th, successfully delivering a pair of communication satellites to geostationary transit orbit in the fourth mission of the year for the European heavy lifting workhorse. With a total payload mass of nearly 10 metric tonnes, This mission was another standard ride for the Ariane 5 that nowadays is used for um, dual payload missions. And they don't really seem to have any problems with Ariane at all, do they? It just keeps going. 
That's an amazing craft. Just like the Mars rovers, they just keep on going. Yeah, they got the Energizer Bunny on board. Uh. <laughs> A Chinese Longmarsh 4C rocket blasted off on the 27th of August, carrying a Yaogan 27 reconnaissance satellite into orbit. Chinese officials declared the launch a success about one hour after the liftoff. Uh, information about what the Yaogan 27's mission is is being currently kept secret by officials, so it's obviously a military thing. Of course. The naughty boy has been tamed, cheered Indian rocket scientists on August the 27th after the <laughs> successful launch of the geostationary satellite launch vehicle, lifting a GSAT-6 into the geostationary transit orbit in the first ever back-to-back successful GSLV Mark II launch vehicle. Hopes are high that the GSLV will be able to keep up a high success rate from now on, following a troubled start in its career that required a significant redesign of the vehicle, so, um, yeah, they've been a bit worried about this uh, rocket failing again. So, yeah, that is why they <laughs> cheered the, the naughty boy has been tamed. But still, I mean, please tell me you thought of Monty Python when you heard that. He's not the Messiah, he's a very naughty boy! <laughs> <laughs> it just seems a rather odd thing to be chanting during a rocket launch. And there are just so many other symbolisms involved with that that we really don't want to get into. (laughs) A familiar sight has returned to the Baikonur Cosmodrome on August the 28th when a proton rocket thundered into the skies over the world's oldest spaceport. Returning to flight after a three-month stand-down, the proton rocket lifted off from the launch pad, embarking on a long mission of just over 15 and a half hours to lift the Inmarsat 5F3 communication satellite to the super synchronous transfer orbit. Pretty much all of the Russian fleet failed, Mm -hmm. which wasn't good. It's not been a great time for the uh, Russian space industry. Well, I mean, just in general, I mean, like I said, you know, four launches, four launch failures in a row, and that was both sides. Yeah, we're just waiting now on news of when SpaceX can get up and running again, because it looks like uh, Antares is going to be launching again soon, so we just got to wait and see. Mm-hmm. So that looks like that rounds up all the major launches for August 2015. This is Arnold J. Rimmer from Red Dwarf. You're listening to TGP Nominal. Listen to it. So what else has been happening out there, John? Well, you knew this, but I don't know if our listeners knew this, that you can send your name to Mars on board a NASA lander. You too could have your name land on Mars a year from now aboard NASA's next Red Planet mission. So what they're doing is they're allowing people to just simply sign up for their to put their name on a website and then it gets etched into a piece of silicon and then it goes up to Mars. Uh, and you get in return a, uh, a boarding pass. <laughs> and you also get frequent flyer miles. Again, j- just entirely for bragging rights for the most part. But um, you can only do this until September 8th. Uh, and this is going to be for the InSight Mars lander, which is going to take off in February and is supposed to touch down, hopefully, seven months later. My, my frequent flyer miles are doing quite well, thank you, because I, I already went up on Orion, so... <laughs> brag, brag, brag. 
So uh, people who submit their names will learn the, fre- the frequent flyer, and all that does is reflect their participation with what they've done with NASA. Again, just bragging rights. So the next time you'll be able to earn up your miles will come in 2018 when Orion and NASA's space launch system... They launched together for the first time. Now, that's going to be an unmanned flight as well. Uh, It's going to be known as the Exploration Mission 1, and we'll send Orion on a seven-day trip around the moon uh, to test out the various systems for it. So, if you want to have your name get sent up with the next Mars lander, then you've got until September 8th, and uh, that's all there is to it. But that that is kind of cool. And they do actually put a little bit of effort into the website to do that. So they do some really good stuff on there for the for the different missions. Uh, the, if, if if you go on to our um, about us page, you'll see the other ones that we've been involved with, um, as well as the one that John's just mentioned. They've been doing these kind of things for for a little while, and it does make a difference because it just really feels good that you're involved with something, even in a small way. Yeah, it's just neat. It's also a nice way to gauge participation, and you know what. People are actively paying attention to it, that sort of thing. Well, heck, I wouldn't be surprised if NASA would, you know, in a little bit of a surreptitious way, use this to say, hey, Congress, you buffoons, look <laughs> at how much people are actually interested in what we do. So, how about giving us more money instead of to your pork barrel projects, huh? <laughs> Not that I heavily dislike the way the u.s government treats nasa or anything a lot of people lash out at nasa and it's it's not their fault it's not their fault if they're not getting funding from congress what are they going to do on August the 10th, Gennady Padalka and Mikhail Konyanko were facing a list of rather mundane tasks as far as spacewalks go, from cleaning windows to antenna installation, but nevertheless, they had a busy schedule laid out for their EVA. Racing through their tasks, the two spacewalkers finished all objectives in an excursion lasting just over five and a half hours. Now, people moan about, I don't do windows. You imagine having to suit up (laughs) and going zero gravity to try and clean an outside window. (laughs) Don't they have the Canada arm to do that sort of thing? Come on. That would be so cool, wouldn't it? (laughs) They could get uh, Robonaut to do it, couldn't they? There you go. Hey, R5Q4, go out there and clean the windows. (laughs) The U.S. Department of Energy has approved the start for the construction of a 3.2 gigapixel digital camera. That's the world's largest, and it's going to be at the heart of the Large Synoptic Survey Telescope. Just to put that into a little bit of perspective, in order to properly display that, you would currently need about 1,500 HDTVs or like a, a little less than 400 of the new uh, Ultra HD TVs. That, you know, that's the quality of the images that this thing is going to take. Mm-hmm. So it's going to take digital pictures of the entire visible southern sky uh, every few nights from atop a mountain in Chile. I'm going to take a shot at this. I will say it's Cerro Pajon. I, don't, I have no idea. I don't speak Spanish. So basically what they're going to try to do is catalog basically the largest amount of, of, of stars and galaxies ever. So this puppy is going to sit at the heart of this observatory. And uh, it's actually kind of cool because it's going to be about the size of a car. But it has these lenses that will basically they can rotate around it. And then the housing can then choose whichever filter it needs and just pull it down and take it 
So, you know, oh, I need a picture in ultraviolet. So it'll rotate over to the ultraviolet uh, lens, pull the lens down, take its picture, and then put the lens back up and switch over to, well, now I need one that's near infrared. Rotate the lens out, or, sorry, the filter out, get the near infrared filter, plunk that down, take its picture. It's really cool the way it, it works. They have an animation showing how that will work as well as the results of, of the pictures on the website. And it, it's really neat. So the building and testing of this camera is going to take about five years. Uh, it's going to view everything from near ultraviolet to near infrared. And it's going to generate almost six petabytes of data per year. To put that into perspective, that's roughly 6 million gigabytes of data per year, 6,000 terabytes of data per year. Per year! Yeah, and that's just going to be of photos. That's a lot. (laughs) That is a lot. So take stock in any enterprise storage company right now, you know. <laughs> Jeez, yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, they, they say that it, they sh- it should start taking pictures in roughly the year 2022. But, I mean, it's just, it's just, and to think that, to look at the animation, you think, oh, well, okay, that's cute. But then you think about that thing is the size of a car. You know, as someone who does videography and, and photography on the side, I'm just thinking of the sensor that must be involved for that kind of resolution. Um, We should be able to get some really, really amazing photos of the southern sky in less than 10 years. Yeah, that'll be interesting to see what what results they get from that. Gennady Padalka uh, was joined by the two one-year crew members, that's Mikhail Konyenko and Scott Kelly, as they took a ride aboard their Soyuz spacecraft on August the 28th. I can just imagine one of them saying, yeah, I'm riding shotgun. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Switching docking ports at the ISS, rolling out the red carpet for the next Soyuz craft, set to arrive later this month. The crew on docks from the... Um, I'm going to try and get this right. It's the Poisk uh, module and spent 18 minutes flying over to the aft port of the Evesra service module on the orbiting outpost. I don't think I've ever come across them doing that kind of thing before. Uh, no. It's normally... you know it docks that's it it stays there till the six months is up and they go to actually move it from one part of the space station to another to make room for other things it's because they've got the HTV5 there as well like I said earlier there is a lot of traffic coming to and from the space station so uh, yeah it's it's the first time I can think of that that's actually happened I might be wrong and somebody will probably correct me on that that's (laughs) alright but but that's what we're all about we're we're here to, to find stuff out so that's that's fine with me. Well, it looks like uh, New Horizons. I'm sure that some people thought that, well, it did all its, all of its stuff with Pluto, so now it's sending its data back, which will take over a year, and then it's just going to go off on space, and that's it. Nope. It's actually got another target that they're trying to get funding to say, hey, you know, we want to send this to yet another Kuiper Belt object. So, no, New Horizons is not done and finished. Well, <laughs> Congress, yeah, you know. So, um, <laughs> but it looks like what they want to do now is they've selected an object called 2014 MU69. Uh, the thing is nearly a billion miles beyond Pluto. 
And uh, it was one of two destinations that they originally chose. So uh, the quote here is, Even as the New Horizons spacecraft speeds away from Pluto out into the Kuiper Belt and the data from the exciting encounter with this new world is being streamed back to Earth, we are looking outward to the next destination for this intrepid explorer. Uh, And that's uh, John Grunsfeld, who's an astronaut and chief of NASA's science mission directorate at the headquarters in Washington. says that uh, while discussions of whether to approve this extended mission will take place in the larger context of the planetary science portfolio. Oh, dear God, is this guy a manager? (laughs) (laughs) We expect it to be much less expensive than the prime mission while still providing new and exciting science. So they have to make a proposal, which, of course, you know, looks like I beg for money. So they've got to uh, write up a proposal, which is going to be due sometime next year. It's going to be evaluated, and then NASA and, I'm assuming, Congress will then decide on the go-ahead. So this was apparently one of two things, but this was close enough to Pluto that they're actually able to uh, still have a significant amount of fuel left after it. Because some of the other things that they were looking at going to, they probably could have reached it, but it would have burned up a lot of their fuel. Mm -hmm. And this way they're going to, they said, hey, you know, this is a great object that we could go and discover. It's close to Pluto, (laughs) billion miles, relatively (laughs) close to Pluto. And we can still save fuel and all of that. So that's pretty much what they're going to go for. Uh, it was Like I said, it was discovered in 2014 uh, among five objects. You can thank Hubble for this because Hubble is, is the one that actually discovered this. Mm-hmm. So, But what they're really interested about this is that most other objects like the asteroid belt and so forth, they're close enough to the sun that they get heated and so forth. But stuff out in the Kuiper belt gets very, very, very little heat from the sun. So they think that that's going to show an even more well-preserved representation of what the solar system used to be like billions of years ago. So that's what they plan on doing. And hopefully they will get the funding for this. It would be nice to think that the ridiculous success of, of the Pluto mission will be enough to keep people interested in this, that, yes, we will continue to give it funding, um, you know, as long as it has fuel and it has, you know, it, it's, it's within its lifespan. Did you see, speaking of Pluto, did you see they just released another photo called Enhanced Color, where... I mean, they did they, they really tweaked up the color on it but oh my god is it gorgeous yeah it really is i mean i've always had a thing for pluto anyway because you know as, as i said on previous podcasts that pluto was when we were at school the last planet and right. when it got uh, <laughs> downgraded <laughs> um I've, I've kind of got a thing for the underdog so <laughs> <laughs> But yeah, Don't let Neil deGrasse Tyson hear you say that. <laughs> Later this month, we'll see the very first force feedback-based teleoperation of a rover-based robotic arm system on Earth from the International Space Station, orbiting 400 kilometers above our heads. Danish ESA astronaut Andreas Mogensen will take control of the rover, which incorporates a pair of arms to perform precision operations. In the process, Andreas will make use of a haptic control, providing him with force feedback to let him feel for himself as the robotic arms encounter resistance. In this way, he can perform dexterous mechanical assembly tasks in sub-millimeter range remotely controlled from space. This is just totally amazing. When humans have to perform precision operations, 
for instance, simply inserting our key into the lock of the door, we are relying largely on our feeling of tactile and force receptors in our hand and arms, not using our eyesight, states Andre Schwell, head of ESA's Telerobotics and Haptics Laboratory. Visual information is of minor importance in these kind of tasks, and we can do this kind of thing with our eyes closed. Now, ESA is transferring this skill to a remotely controlled robotic system. Without the haptic feedback, the operator of the robotic arm, or rover, must be very careful not to damage anything it comes in contact with. As a result, a simple task in space often takes a very long time. The lab team working with students from the Delft University of Technology has developed a dedicated rover called the Interact Centaur. Uh, it's a 4x4 vehicle that combines a posable camera, a pair of highly advanced force-sensitive robotic arms. Why am I thinking of Star Wars? And a, num- <laughs> <laughs> and a number of proximity and localization sensors. <laughs> During the experiment, the rover will be driven around the grounds of ESA's East Tech Technical Centre in the Netherlands by remote control from the ISS. That's going to be quite funny if somebody isn't actually told about this and this vehicle starts moving on its own for no apparent reason. Uh. Andreas, who is due to launch to the ISS any time now, will attempt to guide the robot to an operation task board and then remove a metal pin from it and then plug it back into the board, which has a very tight mechanical fit and a tolerance of only a Hundred and fifty micrometers. That's less than a sixth of a millimeter. Wow. <laughs> As Andre explains, the task is very difficult with visual information alone, but should be easy if the force feedback information tells you when the pin hits the board or how it's misaligned. This force information will be used to plan the following motions by the astronaut as if he would be standing there doing the task himself with his own arms and hands. The signals from the astronaut to the rover during the experiment must travel via a system of geostationary satellites covering a distance of nearly 90,000 kilometers with only a two-way delay of one second. That's just incredible. I mean, that, that'd stink for gaming. That, that's one hell of a lag time. Yeah. But. <laughs> the date of the activity is dependent on the overall ISS schedule and that of Andreas's personal Iris mission and has been allocated to take place between the 6th and the 9th of September. This is one I think we really need to look out for because there's going to be some really good um, video footage of this, I think dual cameras so that you've got one on the space station one on the site in the netherlands it's it's going to be really good and if they pull it off then yeah it will be the next step for um exploration really cue all of the anime mech people out there (laughs) getting ready for gigantic robot battles on the moon that's going to take some kind of special training though just because you're talking about force feedback and so forth but even if they're doing stuff on the moon that's a little over two and a half seconds for a signal to go to the moon and back so it's still going to take a little bit of of training because you're seeing and feeling stuff that happened i guess a second and a half in the past you know so you have to tell it to do something and it's going to take a little over a second then you get the response from that back in 
one and a half seconds, your brain's going to go a little bit nuts on that one. <laughs> it's a bit like the old satellite interviews they used to do on the news where it used, oh, to, God, speak, yeah. used to be hilarious. <laughs> Five second pause between asking questions and so forth. Let's see, we might have a new form of uh, um, engines on the on the design block now. And I'm not talking about the highly controversial electromagnetic one. This is one that actually has been proven multiple times. It just has never really been done in space. But it might happen now. You never know. It's, uh, it's received NASA funding, and it is for a plasma rocket. It's the Variable Specific Impulse Magnetoplasma Rocket. So I'm assuming that the pronunciation is Vasmir or Vasmir or something like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, who, who knows? The government loves their little cutesy acronyms. It, it's just silly. So basically, plasma is an electrically charged gas, but it gets incredibly hot and it can be controlled by strong magnetic fields. So, you know, it can actually be used for guidance and so forth but because it's so hot and it's the way that it's controlled it's actually incredibly fuel efficient compared to just you know oxygen hydrogen combustion or, or whatever they use mm-hmm. as i said that this has been actually, actually been tested it's the odd astra rocket company they, they finalized negotiations with nasa and this is going to be the uh Next Space Technology Exploration Partnership, which they're calling Next Step. Um, sometimes I think they come up with these acronyms first. I'm sure and they then do. Come up with a way to fit the acronym later. <laughs> Let's call it Next Step. Okay, what's it going to mean? I don't know. We'll figure it out. Uh, so <laughs> Got a whole team of people trying to fill in the gaps. <laughs> <laughs> so, but uh, apparently they've already had a model of this running. Uh, what they what they want to do is have this running for a minimum of a hundred hours continuously at a power level of a hundred kilowatts, and right now they've had over ten thousand successful firings of this engine prototype, but they've only been for short duration, lasting like a minute. But I mean that's still enough that they were able to prove, hey, we have something here. Now they're obviously they're going to do longer. Uh, duration tests just to validate that the whole thing will work in space you know but again just because this thing can produce velocities that are significantly faster than chemical rockets uh, it's going to make them incredibly fuel efficient so chances are that electromagnetic stuff is not going to pan out but uh, the plasma who knows even if it just decreases by half the time to get from one place to another with fuel economy savings on that on top of it that sounds like a win to me hopefully this will work out yuri's night has gained some recognition from a rather unusual source the disney junior tv show miles from tomorrowland or miles from tomorrow if you live in the uk don't ask me why they've changed the name of it yeah Another one. That's weird. People over here know Tomorrowland because it's part of Walt Disney World's Epcot Center. Yeah. But is it just not that well known over there? I'm just assuming that they're they're afraid that it's only people that have been to Florida (laughs) that will know what they're going on about. (laughs) All right. Well, I mean, it's still just as here Tomorrowland would still be kind of cool, even if you don't know what it is. Mm. But whatever. This is Disney. Now, have a listen to this. I think someone's excited about their first Yuri's night. Well, who can blame him? It's the greatest holiday in the universe. You're going to love it, Miles. The party on the Tevescape is so Yuri. So Yuri? What's that mean? 
Yuri Gagarin was the first human in space. So when we say something is Yuri, it means it's incredible, unexpected, and very special. Just like Yuri himself. That's why every April 12th, the day Yuri launched, there are parties all over the galaxy. Attention, Callistos. Now approaching the Tethescape. Blastastic! We're here! As we just mentioned, uh, <laughs> Mars from Tomorrowland is an animated space adventure series that centers around the Callisto family who live on a spaceship called the Stellar Sphere and work for the Tomorrowland Transit Authority, which is also the name of the company that runs the monorail systems at Tomorrowland in the uh, Disney theme parks. In, in this episode, the Callistos have been commissioned to transport a intergalactic funk musician to a Yuri's Night Celebration celebration concert but as you can probably guess things don't work out as planned the show has been developed to encourage young kids to get into science and space but it's so yuri as they expressed in the show there that the creators of the show have embraced george and loretta whiteside's dream that one day humans will have colonized the galaxy and every year on april the 12th we all celebrate the reason how it was possible to live on these outposts kids who watch the show will now look up Yuri's Night and discover that it's a real event and will want to get involved, which can only be a good thing, right? I would think. Now, after I found out about this episode of Miles from Tomorrowland, I looked it up on YouTube and I posted a link to it with a comment about how great it was that Disney was embracing Yuri's Night. My post has been favourited and retweeted by a guy called Sacha Palladino, who is the creator and the executive producer of the television <laughs> show. That's just nice. so cool. Nice. <laughs> um, but yeah, it's great that, you know, it, it was a small event and it's grown and grown and grown and now that Disney's embraced it who knows where it can go that's really all it needed was some publicity yeah and a show like that where it's aimed at the younger audience which is you really want the young, younger audience to yeah. get excited about space and science. It certainly seems like the uh, older folks really aren't re- doing that much with it. That's true. Sad to say. Let's, let's just hope that um, this this will spark something major for Yuri's Night and um, keep Ryan going, that's for sure. <laughs> <laughs> the, uh, the folks up on the space station have actually had their first taste, literally, of... Uh, Fresh veggies. Yeah, they have. They, they've actually been able to grow some red lettuce. Which has got a rather unusual name, if I remember rightly. It's called outrageous instead of outrageous. <laughs> and who knows? Who knows? This is pretty flippin' important, simply because going to Mars, you can't get resupplied, at least not easily. You know, you might be able to schedule supplies to go up there at a certain time, but... What if something goes wrong? If it takes years to get to Mars, something goes wrong, you're not going to get resupplied with whatever got lost for several years. But uh, these were all actually grown in a little microwave-sized box under some LED lights, specifically just red and blue lights. It it was kind of funny because people think, oh, wow, the reason they're green is because that's what they use for photosynthesis. No, 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 that's not how light works. The reason plants are green is because they don't use green, so they reflect it off. So they actually had just a whole bunch of red and blue LEDs to give it what light was necessary. And uh, they said that it actually tasted fresh. It said it tasted like arugula. Mm-hmm. 
whatever that is. Can't say I'm big on my veggies, but they only had half of it because the rest of it is going to get sent back to Earth for examination to make sure, you know, is it truly the exact same as what would grow in a full gravity environment? But according to this, it said that it wasn't like they could just take a knife and cut it in half and start munching. It said that they actually had to swab it with a Q-tip with a special citric acid preparation to make sure that it's clean. You know, after that, then they could do, you know, cutting it off slowly. Apparently, their tools for cutting it kept floating around. Yeah. <laughs> so they had to keep those in line. But yeah, I mean, the whole thing is just to figure out how to grow food on missions that take astronauts, you know, wherever the, from Earth. And I would think that maybe a side effect of that would be, you know, truly fresh air since you're going to have photosynthesis going on. Granted, you, they couldn't survive if their oxygen scrubbers die, but still, you know, just, just something like that. Yeah, so it's just a way to try to become self-sufficient. They do plan on growing tomatoes, <coughs> sorry, tomatoes, and <laughs> cabbage next. That, that's a very cool way to do it, and it also kind of makes you think about, you know, like here, we, Pennsylvania, we get harsh winters, we can't grow anything. Mm-hmm. Why not just go out, buy a strip of red and blue LEDs, and just grow some stuff indoors. If they can do that on a space station in a microwave-sized box, why can't people do that at home? Yeah, that's right. And I've noticed that there's a load of acronyms actually involved in this as well. Oh, uh, I know. Because the actual system was called Veggie, V-E-G-G-I-E. So that's uh-huh. obviously vegetable, environmental growth something or other <laughs> give it up um, give it up <laughs> <laughs> which was developed by a, a company called Orbitech um, it's actually being housed in a kind of a greenhouse thing uh, with the acronym LADA <laughs> yeah I j- uh, yeah. <laughs> Dude, I, I worked for the government for six years. Uh, they had an acronym for everything. They had one project where the one acronym was, the, you know, the one letter of the acronym was actually an acronym for another acronym. <laughs> I kid you not. Oh, I'm just like, man. I just, uh, brain explosion. But <laughs> the, the government does love their acronyms. Obviously, they're, they're trying to get this kind of sustainable food ready for when they make the journey to Mars, not only will it be great for the the food situation, it will, would also be used by the astronauts for recreational gardening activities during deep space yeah. missions. Yeah, why so not? Give, give them something to do. <laughs> and no weeds. Oh, that would be so cool. That would be, <laughs> oh, oh, believe me, I love gardens. I love having a garden. I hate the weeds. I mean, it doesn't really matter. You know, when you've got the, like, uh, you know, people put stones down to try and stop the weeds and they put that mesh stuff underneath it, it still finds its way through. Yes, it does. (laughs) You just cannot get away from them. Did you know that NASA attends and has panels at San Diego Comic Con? Eh? Yep, they do. NASA conducted two panels this year. Let's have a little taster of the first one. Hello, Comic-Con. And welcome to Journey to Mars and the Martian. uh, My name is Aditya Sood. I am uh, one of the producers on the upcoming film, The Martian. And we have an incredible, incredible panel today. Really excited to to talk to you guys. 
I have not been more starstruck than I was backstage with these guys because they actually do real work and truly, truly amazing things. So you guys are in for a real treat today. Um, Uh, so, all right, so let me introduce our panel. Um, first, uh, Jim Green, uh, the Director of Planetary Science for NASA. Um, he's in charge of planetary exploration. Uh, he's a Mars expert. He was also a technical consultant on the Martian and helped us in ways that you cannot even possibly imagine. Um, and... Um, and he, uh, you know, he is basic. Uh, by the way, he also doesn't just do Mars. He does pretty much the entire solar system. And I, I know I promised him I would just keep it to Mars, but he's also involved with uh, the Pluto flyby. Maybe some of you guys have heard. Um, and we have Todd May. Uh, Todd is, um, he's just building the next uh, spaceship that's actually going to take us to Mars. Uh, you guys may have heard of it. It's the Space Launch System. Um, he is, uh, I mean, it, it's incredible. What, and he'll, he'll tell you more about it, but the SLS, when it's completed, is actually going to be more powerful than the Saturn V rocket. Uh, and then we have Victor Glover. Victor Glover, as of yesterday, is an astronaut. Officially. And he's, and he's, he and the members of his class aren't just any astronauts. They are actually the class that most likely will be among the first people to walk on Mars. Uh, and finally, we have Andy Weir, uh, the author of The Martian. Or, or as I like to say, the guy who got us into this mess. <laughs> um, and Andy, you know, is, besides being an amazing guy, is an amazing novelist and I think has created something that, you know, not, well, already as a book is going to be an all-time classic and hopefully we've done him proud uh, with, with our film. So that was a tiny piece of the, uh, the Journey to Mars and the Martian panel at San Diego Comic-Con this year. It goes on for about mm, an hour-ish. It's a really interesting uh, view. I'm going to have to watch that. I was too busy focusing on the, the movie and, and other stuff. <laughs> Whilst we're on the subject of the Martian, have you seen the latest trailer? Actually, I'm not sure if you can call it that, but have a listen to this. Ever since our species first looked up at the sky, we've dreamed of reaching Mars. Back in 2029, that dream became real when the first humans set foot on the red planet. And in a few months, a new group of astronauts will make the journey. It's one of humanity's most ambitious undertakings, the direct result of a decades-long global space race and of a joint mission created to extend human exploration to the farthest reaches of our solar system. This 
is the story of Ares, our greatest adventure. Behold the Hermes, the most complex and expensive machine ever built. We only built one, and it remains harbored in low Earth orbit between missions. Astronauts rely on shuttles to travel up to Hermes, and from there, they set sail on a perfect controlled cruise. But make no mistake, this is no easy journey. The trip to Mars is as dangerous and challenging as anything we've ever tried. The average journey checks in at 140 million miles. And throughout the trip, Hermes and its crew are bombarded by cosmic radiation that would irreversibly damage their DNA if not for the ship's protection. And if that isn't enough, solar flares, asteroids, and meteoroids pose a catastrophic threat to the mission. One major strike could leave Hermes stranded in the hostile environment of space with no hope of rescue. Provided everything goes as planned, the Ares 3 crew will arrive in Martian orbit 124 days later, ready to descend to the surface. Once on Mars, they will spend a month in a habitat designed to protect them from low oxygen, high radiation, dust storms, and temperatures that can dip to 100 degrees below zero. Despite those challenges, the crew will thoroughly investigate the planet's biological history and its potential to cultivate and sustain life. Depending on what they learn, Star Talk of the future may be posting to you from a permanent self-sustaining Martian colony, examining a new adventure that will take us even deeper into the stars above. Earth, a magnificent world to which we owe our creation, no longer seems destined to be our final resting place. Our adventure is just beginning. On behalf of StarTalk, we'd like to wish the Ares 3 crew a safe journey. Godspeed, Hermes. And as always, keep looking up. Interesting. He had that keep looking up just like uh, Jack Horkheimer did. Yeah. Um, he actually does use it on his StarTalk radio, uh, his podcast. Um, well, you know who that is straight away. <laughs> oh, yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> I can listen to that voice for ages. <laughs> um, it's just amazing. You can't think that that's just a trailer for a movie. It feels like it's actually happening. It was just a, a stroke of genius getting Neil deGrasse Tyson involved. <laughs> Not surprising, though. No, I think he was probably one of the advisors as well on the, on the movie. Probably. The first time I saw that, I got goosebumps. Watching that piece, um, so I'm, I'm going to have to include that in the show notes as well. We'll go on to the the second NASA Comic Con panel, which is completely different to the other one. So let's go with that. Uh, my name's Jay Ferguson. I am. Uh, oh, thanks. Hey, mom. <laughs> uh, I am a, a lifelong uh, sci-fi slash all things space related nerd geek fanboy bordering on the obsessive at times which I feel like a couple of you in this room might know what I'm talking about 
you know, the beginning of my love of space and, and sci-fi really started with Star Wars. That was kind of the fantastical side of it. And then it hit on a real side for me when I saw the right stuff. And that became kind of the catalyst for me to uh, follow my dream of becoming an astronaut. So I, I started to do all of the things I thought I needed to do to do that. I went to space camp when I was 16. Uh, for those of you who went to space camp, went to Aviation Challenge as well. Uh, great time out there, incredible experience. Uh, followed that up, going to the Air Force Academy in uh, Colorado Springs. Had every intention of going there. All right, and uh, then I took flying lessons. Got about two flying lessons in, and uh, it became quickly apparent to me that I was going to have a hard time piloting a shuttle or any other spacecraft if uh, I couldn't stop throwing up. So uh, th- those dreams were dashed. But this topic is really incredible. You know, turning uh, science fiction to science reality is a real deal now. You know, to me, the uh, survival of mankind depends upon what these people on this panel are doing with their life's calling. And it is, yeah. And it is absolutely imperative, excuse me, that... uh, You know, we continue to raise awareness for the space program. We continue to raise awareness for space travel. It depends heavily upon public opinion and public support. And without it, it makes their job a lot harder. So continue to spread the word. Now, uh, why don't we get started, huh? So first thing we're going to do, man, this is so cool. I don't know about you guys. I watched every single piece of the International Space Station built live on NASA TV from my computer. My wife would walk in and wonder if I had lost my mind. Uh, So it is my absolute pleasure to introduce uh, a little video greeting from the International Space Station. And this is uh, featuring Scott Kelly who is currently on the station on a year trip. He's about a hundred and some odd days into it, I believe. Uh, So let's roll it. I'm astronaut Scott Kelly of NASA aboard the International Space Station. I'm flying at a speed of five miles a second, 250 miles above the Earth, aboard this magnificent laboratory where every day we turn science fiction into science fact. It can't be a space adventure without robots, like the droids in Star Wars were testing robotic devices to help perform autonomous satellite servicing in the future and other selected tasks normally reserved for astronauts to conduct during spacewalks. And very much like in the movie 2001 A Space Odyssey, the space station is a destination for commercial companies to deliver cargo and in the not-too-distant future, astronauts as well. As I conduct research during my one-year mission on the station, the lessons learned will pave the way for our journey to Mars. The second panel was, as you heard, turning science fiction into science fact, which uh, was another amazing panel. And NASA have been doing this for two years now at the Comic-Con. It hasn't really been made that public. People now think Comic-Con as being movies and comic books mostly movies anymore you know a a touch of of video games here and there but primarily 
just you know geek movies. You know, no one really thinks of Comic Con for NASA because what does NASA really have to do with comics? I, I get that it, it is an appropriate venue because Comic Con is a haven for geeks. I get it, but. I can still see where it's like it doesn't totally fit really with what's going on. You know, it would be like NASA showing up at PAX. Yeah, you got a <laughs> bunch of geeks who love their video games and and love that sort of thing. NASA would be a decent fit for it, but it's still just one of those where it's like eh, they don't really belong here even though the core audience is the people who are here. So I can kind of understand why it hasn't gotten a whole lot of exposure at Comic-Con. It's, it's sad, really, though, but as I was blown away by both of the of the, the different panels that they had there. I can understand the first one because, obviously, it's endorsing the the, the Martian movie. Um, sure. The, the second one, actually, one of the panel members was Adam... Nimoy, okay, Leonard's um, son, who's actually yep. written a book yeah, about his dad, a movie about his father's life. Yeah, so that's what he was promoting on the panel. I can't. Yeah. I don't know. So. It still just seems like that. That's more fitting for a sci-fi convention because mm-hmm. there are still plenty of those that go on. Obviously, I mean, you went to a, a big one over there. Um, yeah, I don't know, but I mean, it's just it's good that they're doing it. I'm not I'm not bashing them for that. You you, you said that about it being surprising at a Comic Con and they didn't really advertise it much. Uh, kind of a weird mix, but eh, who knows? We need to have a NASACon. Oh, uh, I need tell a you something. We have one here. Well, not NASACon. We <laughs> we we have a Cosmic Con. That'll work. Um, it, the first one was last year, actually, up in Manchester. And I'm I'm trying to to get the guys who organise it to shake hands with me. The virtual handshake. <laughs> See if we can um, get involved next year. Then what we need to do is to get British Airways to you know actually make their air tickets affordable so that I can go over to attend these things. The NASA's talking about making science fiction as science reality give me my transporter damn it <laughs> then i could just beam over there heisenberg be damned <laughs> I'm, 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 t- I'm telling you now that it wasn't until i started getting involved with this podcast that i didn't realize how much the uk has got going for it in the the sci-fi conventions and the the, the space related stuff i didn't realize how much of it we've actually got here and now it's, it's kind of mind-boggling <laughs> Which is a good thing because it's going to yeah. keep keep me busy. <laughs> <laughs> now, as I say, I'll include the links to both panels and the uh, Star Talk Martian trailer in the show notes. Now we're going to take a, a short break, and when we come back, we're going to bring out our special guest. International Podcast Day is September 30th, and you can help spread the word. International Podcast Day is dedicated to promoting podcasting worldwide. You may be asking, what can I do to get involved? It's pretty simple. First, head over to internationalpodcastday.com and check the suggestions. Second, use hashtag podcast day to join in the conversation. Remember September 30th. Now, let's start the conversation. Blast off into the podosphere with TGP Nominal. 
I have the privilege of talking to Doug Millard, who is heavily involved in an amazing exhibition that is about to come to the Science Museum in London. How are you doing, sir? Hi, Mark. Yes, I'm very good, thank you. Brilliant. Now, before we talk about the exhibition, could you tell the listeners a little bit about yourself and your role at the museum? I've worked at the Science Museum for many years and I am the Deputy Keeper for Technologies and Engineering. So I work with colleagues on those collections uh, amongst the museum's many collections dealing with the... um, the type of engineering and technologies as opposed to science or medicine. So that's roughly how we chop up the collection. So that's the group I'm working with. So how many space-related artefacts are housed at the Science Museum? Well, we have uh, several hundred, uh, just under a thousand actually, uh, space items in the collection. And they're a mixture of British, wider European artefacts, American Some of the American ones are on loan to the Science Museum, particularly some of the more important ones like the Apollo 10 spacecraft. But uh, we have about just under, as I say, a thousand objects. Now, as I said earlier, you're you're with me today to talk about a momentous exhibition that is coming to the Science Museum in September, aren't you? Yes, indeed, yeah. Can you tell us a little bit about it? The Science Museum has been displaying stories about space exploration very much since the very first spacecraft was launched which was Sputnik launched by the Soviet Union in 1957. We had a small exhibition accompanying the uh, what's called the International Geophysical Year which the satellite was launched as part of and uh, ever since then we've been building our space displays so from the mid-1980s we've had a permanent space gallery but one thing which we always underplayed was the, the, the Soviet, the Russian side of this amazing story of exploration. So one of the reasons we wanted to do this exhibition was to redress the balance, to remind people that it was the Soviet Union that started the space program and indeed for many of our visitors they may not have realized this in the first place because the Apollo missions in particular, the American Apollo missions in the 1960s, had such a dramatic effect that it tended to mask what had been done before by Soviet Russia. So that was one of the fundamental reasons we wanted to do this exhibition. Because the Soviets at that time pretty much were first in every aspect of space exploration until the Apollo missions, really, weren't they? From 1957 and the launch of that first Sputnik through to, say, 1965 and the very first spacewalk, which was carried out by Alexei Leonov, the Soviets just um, stacked up one first after another. Round about that time, 1965, that was when the American response really started to take effect and their own programs that were leading up to Apollo, they really started to pick up momentum and of course Apollo itself was a, um, a stunning success with the first moon landing in 1969. This is the first time that artefacts like these have left Russian soil, isn't it? This collection of spacecraft, uh, space artefacts, and there's 150 of them. It's quite unique. It has never been gathered before. This exhibition is the first of its time anywhere. And that's including Russia. Some of the most important spacecraft we're displaying are not on public display even in, in Russia. So we're hoping also there will be plenty of uh, Russian visitors coming to this exhibition as well. Now, am I right in saying that one of the original cosmonauts attended the press conference when the Science Museum announced that the exhibition was going to take place? Yes, indeed. Uh, Alexei Leonov, who I mentioned uh, a few minutes ago, he uh, came along to the press launch and um, just had everyone mesmerised as he talked through 
his experiences of space flight. He flew into space twice, uh, once carrying out that uh, spacewalk I referred to. And then uh, a little bit later in 1975, he was part of what was called the Apollo-Soyuz uh, mission. That was when an Apollo spacecraft, an American spacecraft, and a Soyuz, a Soviet Soyuz spacecraft, linked up in orbit. So he was able to take us through his experiences. And in the evening, uh, better still, he actually used a blackboard and chalk to draw his experiences. He's a, he's a very accomplished artist, and perhaps if his um, if things had worked out differently for him, he would have become an artist or was one of his great loves rather than a cosmonaut. I don't think he's complaining. It's rather strange, really, because there's uh, other um, astronauts and cosmonauts that have actually got into art more, more or less after they've been into space. I know Alan Bean, the astronaut, has a portfolio of art uh, mainly based around space, and uh, they are quite amazing pieces too. Yes, indeed. I mean. Uh, we're delighted we're able to display a sketch that Leonov made while he was in orbit wow. on the Voskhod 2 mission. That's the mission that he carried out his spacewalk uh, from, uh, actually depicting the uh, the sunrise uh, over the horizon. They have coloured pencils, or they had coloured pencils uh, on those early missions. They had to be attached to the wrist to stop them floating around the <laughs> spacecraft. And we have one of the sketches Leonov made and also the, the pencils he used to, to do it with. So we're, we're delighted about that. Is the timeline of the exhibition strictly during the time of the space race or is it longer than that? Uh, well, it's longer, actually. I think some of our visitors would be su quite surprised to enter the exhibition because this first section looks at the, the inspiration which caused many of the, the space pioneers in Soviet Russia to do their experiments, to go on to design rockets and spacecraft. Uh, around about the turn of the 20th century, end of the 19th century, beginning of the 20th. But these early decades of the 20th century really were formative. There was an outburst almost of imagination, uh, enthusiasm. It showed itself in works of art, uh, the suprematist movement in particular. Russians before the revolution picturing a future in space and then as the revolution followed through there were people thinking about the building of a new world not just on earth but also in space. So we have a, uh, a painting by an artist called Yuan showing this new planet. So we are actually starting way before the first Sputnik in 1957 but um, overall it's it is a chronological narrative and we come right up to the present day with all the space station work the uh, the Russians are involved with and then at the end we look ahead we speculate on uh, what might be uh, in the future for for human beings in space is an interesting narrative from the 20th century essentially now the, the project itself must have been a huge undertaking and a bit of a logistical challenge how long did it take from the the concept to actually maneuvering the artifacts into place at the museum well we started working on this um, seriously in 2011 and we're opening in september 2015 so it's taken a uh, four solid years. We'd been uh, thinking about it for longer than that. But you're quite right, there have been lots of uh, things that both uh, we had to learn, uh, our Russian partners had to learn, because no exhibition like this had ever been put on before. So we were both learning together as we went along, mm -hmm. but um, just so delighted that it's now now happening. Because they're, they're not all from the same collection, are they? They're from different places, aren't they? So to get them all together must have been just a bit of a nightmare. <laughs> yeah, so we're borrowing from 18 lenders, 
Uh, that's a mixture of museums, art galleries, uh, which will surprise some people. So we have that work of art I mentioned from Yuan and some of the others. They're coming from the Trechikov Gallery, not a traditional lender to the Science Museum. Mm-hmm. Uh, but we also have space museums, both in Moscow and a town about 100 miles out of Moscow called Kaluga. And then the uh, the space enterprises. Now, we would refer to space companies, uh, contractors. Some of the most important historic spacecraft are kept in the private collections of these space enterprises. So we had to explain to them why this was such an important project. And um, I'm, again, delighted to say that, for example, we have the Vostok Six spacecraft that Valentina Tereshkova flew in, the first woman in space, alongside Voskhod 1. That's the first ever spacecraft to take more than one human into space. And both of those came from the Energia Enterprise. Do you have a uh, favourite piece in the exhibition? Oh, I have, I have lots, I'm afraid. That's the rather uh, predictable answer, I guess. <laughs> um, I mean, both of those spacecraft are just so important. They stand for a moment in humans' relationship with space that will last for as long as we're around. They are that important. But we also have something which didn't quite work out as planned. In 1989, the then Soviet Union admitted to uh, what had formerly been a secret program to land a cosmonaut on the moon, and we started to learn about how they were intending to do it. And one of the star exhibits in this exhibition is the LK-3 lunar lander, that would have taken probably Alexei Leonov down to the moon's surface uh, at the end of the 1960s. That's just an astonishing piece of, uh, of technology, which I think will make a great impression on um, our visitors. But they're also very um, uh, intimate objects, smaller objects. There's a letter from a, a woman who was working on a collective farm in 1959, and she was offering herself to the Soviet space program, saying, I'm, I'm educated, I work hard, please can I um, deliver my, my, my rights to, to help Soviet Russia and go into space. I, I, have, I have nothing else I can realistically offer. Please take me. I, I'm not afraid. And then we have a little doll, a little about the size of a clothes peg, which was presented to the first man in space, Yuri Gagarin, when he toured Tokyo. And um, that was subsequently taken up into space by the first Japanese cosmonaut many years later, both as a talisman, uh, a, um, a memento of Gagarin for good luck, but also uh, as an instrument that was suspended in front of the camera to show mission control when the spacecraft was um, entering orbit and becoming weightless. When it did that, this little Japanese doll started to float around the cabin. And that's kind of a tradition that they've kept on ever since, isn't it? A, um, a, a little doll or something that floats to tell them when they've you know, left the atmosphere. Yes, indeed. There are, there are, there are many traditions and superstitions and... Uh, routines, for, particularly with, with uh, r- r- Russian spacefarers. Not quite so much with, with on the American side. The, uh, uh, Russia seems to be particularly keen on that. So there are films which, uh, well, one film in particular, which all cosmonauts watch before going into space. There are types of music they all listen to. Russian coins are put on the railway line for the train carrying the rocket to flatten all male cosmonauts take a pee against the (laughs) (laughs) the wheel of the bus on the way to the launch pad uh, and so on and so forth so um it's fascinating stories 
obviously the Vostok 6 is, is very important f- for myself personally because of the date, which was the 16th of June 1963 when um, Valentina Tereshkova launched, uh, which is my birthday. So. <laughs> oh, wonderful. <laughs> um, also, there's um, a little mug that belonged to uh, Sergei Korolev when he was in the... Um, in the gulag and he's a, a a big hero of mine because he was one of the pretty much unsung heroes until he died because he was pretty much kept a secret wasn't he totally yes he was uh, his name was not uh, acknowledged until as you say uh, his sort of premature death then he was given a, a state funeral it's not so un- unusual in many ways i mean the, the russian or the then soviet space program was part of the military infrastructure and so um facts and figures were not uh, widely publicized and so that was the main reason why his name was never made public but he is a remarkable character Uh, I can't think of anyone in any space program that comes close to achieving what he did not so much on the engineering and technology side but with the way in which he was able to manage a host of large institutions sometimes with challenging relationships between them and then similarly um, to keep his political masters happy. So to be able to keep all those uh, balls in the air at the same time, absolutely remarkable. And he had tremendous energy drive and willpower. You you mentioned his time in the Gulag. It was that uh, sheer bloody-minded willpower which uh, helped keeping alive during uh, the darkest uh, times of his life. Yeah, indeed. And uh, there's also a nice photograph a group photograph with him and all the cosmonauts which i know that he lovingly called them his little eagles which i i, I love that term uh, that he mm. used to to call them now the cosmonauts birth of the space age is is a separate exhibition from the main science museum isn't it and you have to yes. book tickets how would people go about doing that Yes, you're quite right. So, uh, in a way, it's uh, two for the price of one. We have our permanent space gallery, which is free to to enter. But the Cosmonauts exhibition, you need to uh, just log on to the um, Science Museum's website and the Cosmonauts exhibition pages. You cannot miss them. They are (laughs) very noticeable. And that will tell you how to uh, book your tickets. And I think what we'll do is we'll put a little link to the pages on our show notes so people can go from there to, to get to the to the website as well. Sounds a good idea, excellent. Um, now, how long does the exhibition run for? It runs for six months, closing on March the 13th. And I also believe that the uh, museum is open until 10pm on Fridays, especially for the exhibition? Yes, that's correct, yes. Before you go, we like to make special guests honorary crew members by presenting them with one of our TGP nominal uh, mission patches. It sounds an enticing offer. (laughs) All we ask in return is that you take a photo of yourself with the patch so that we can include you on the honorary crew members wall uh, on on our website. Uh, How could I say no? Well, as I said earlier, it was an absolute privilege talking with you, Doug, and I hope to collaborate with yourself and the Science Museum in the future. It's been a pleasure talking, Mark. Um, I hope you enjoy the exhibition. So... There we had Doug Millard from the Science Museum in London. And if you look him up on Google, it's quite strange because it's quite official, the title they give him on there, because it comes up as Doug Millard, Space Curator. (laughs) Did you intentionally try to say that in an American accent? Yeah. Um, (laughs) 
Okay. No, it was just kind of the Buzz Lightyear <laughs> kind of thing, you know. No, it's no worse than me, you know, greeting you when we start to record this with hello, hello, or something <laughs> like that. I'm hoping, as I said at the end of the interview, that we're going to work with him and the Science Museum in, in the future. We did have a, a little discussion. I can't actually talk about it right now, but something might be in the pipeline. Let's just say that. Okay. <laughs> Spanhead Productions are a small independent sound recording company based in rural Hertfordshire. We specialise in creating content for all your podcasting needs, whether it be field recordings, fox pops, or capturing the atmosphere during social events. Editing is a very time-consuming job, so Spanhead Productions are on hand to take away some of the burden for you. Just advise us on how you'd like your content to sound, and we will do the rest. We can even help you design and manage a website for your podcast too. Visit us now, spanheadproductions.com. Weebly.com. That's spamheadproductions.weebly.com. That brings us to the end of another awesome show. I'd like to thank Doug Millard for taking his time out of his busy schedule to come on board the show. And of course, John for co-piloting tonight. Ah, it's all good. Engines are shut down. We're ready. Let's get off this bird. <laughs> So that leaves me with one last thing to say, and that's thanks for listening. Take care, and we'll talk to you all again soon. Toodles! Well, that about wraps it up for this episode of TGP Nominal. Be sure to visit www.tgpnominal.weebly.com for the show notes for this or any other episode. Just look for the relevant tab on the menu. Let us know what you think of the show. Send an email to garbagepod at virginmedia.com. Because your input is our output. Or you can use the social media icons at the top of the page that include Twitter and Facebook. If you would like to subscribe to any of our podcasts, you can do so via iTunes, the RSS feed, and also TuneIn and Stitcher On Demand Radio. Don't forget to rate and review us. You can also listen to rebroadcasts of all our shows on the Awake Radio group. You can find a link on our podcast pages. If you like what we're doing here, then why not buy us a pint by clicking on the donate button on any of the podcast pages and don't forget to spread the word about us. Station, this is Houston ACR. Thank you. That concludes the event.